Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5. We're going to talk about the painful act of church discipline. The painful act of church discipline. Now chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians moves us into a revealing look at the consequences of fleshly living. This is what's going on at the church of Corinth. We've seen the first two the last time. The first one is immorality. That's one of the consequences of fleshly living. Church of Corinth would not grow up. They live fleshly and therefore one of the consequences is immorality. In verse one, he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now the very fact that this was reported has the idea a lot of people knew about this. This was common knowledge to the people of that area. And Paul says that this man's sin, this immoral sin, is worse than what you find among the Gentiles. Now the question must come to your mind, how in the world could this person be in the church, be guilty of immorality that's worse than the immorality of Corinth? Remember, Corinth was one of the most immoral cities of all the world at that time. And he says, the immorality that's in the church, is this sin is worse than what you find out there. Well, it's the sin of incest. Look what he says, that someone has his father's wife. The sin of incest was, according to Cicero and others, a, a law, a Roman law was against that. In other words, it was a crime and it was a severely punished crime. And so out in the world, you may have had it, but nobody would have known about it for fear of what would happen to them. But in the church, you've got a man guilty of that sin. What a horrible thing and what a horrible testimony for God's people. Well, verse one suggests about three things as we review. First of all, it appears that this isn't this man's real mother. It appears that it's his stepmother. Why do you say that, Wayne? Because he doesn't use the word for mother. Usually he says for his father's wife. However, it is still, in God's eyes, incest. And, I, and we looked back at these verses the last time, but let me do it again. In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 7, it says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. But then in verse 8, it, it, it opens it up to where if the mother dies and the husband remarries or whatever, he says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. And so the whole gambit is covered there. It's a very serious sin 
In, in Leviticus 18 and verse 29, it says, For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 30, there it's more generic. It says, A man shall not take his father's wife. And actually, you have a case for adultery, not only incest, but adultery in God's eyes of what's going on in this man's life within the church. That's the first thing it suggests. Secondly, it suggests, it's in the present tense, that this appears to be an ongoing relationship. For the very fact that people knew it, it must have been continuing in an ongoing relationship. Uh, this suggests that the woman has left this father. Whether she divorced him or not, we don't know. But she's left him and is now living with this man who is supposed to be a believer within the church of Corinth. It also suggests that perhaps uh, this, this wife or this woman is, is not a, a believer. Uh, that's the third thing. Because it says to, to discipline the man, it never says to discipline the woman. Paul does not call for her discipline. He calls for the man's discipline. Well, these are suggestions. You cannot prove it, but it tends to make the mind wonder as you read the verse. This man has been living with this woman. The whole city knows about it. It's killing their testimony. And the Apostle Paul only devotes one verse to that situation. Because there's a second consequence of living fleshly. And that's within the body of believers themselves. You see, the second consequence is indifference. First one is immorality. That's the man. He's guilty. Everybody knows about it. But the problem is not just there. The problem is that the church of Corinth is indifferent to his sin. They've grown insensitive to sin and they're not willing to discipline this man. They allowed him to remain in the church while everybody knew he was living the way he was living. Look at verse two. And he says, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. The word for mourn has the idea of grieving. He said, you've not grieved over this man's sin. You're insensitive to anything that's going on and you're not willing to remove him from your midst. Now we've seen this word arrogant before as we study 1 Corinthians and if you've stayed right along with us, it's the word fusio. That's two O's on the end of it. I'm not exactly sure how to say that. But fusio is really a spiritual airbag. That's a person who walks around, has great talk, but nothing in his walk to back up what he's saying. Full of air. You puncture it, there's nothing behind it. He may say things that sound like they have substance, but when you get a little bit closer, you find out they're really nothing of what they say that they are. And we found in verse six in the last message of chapter four, that a person who is arrogant, a spiritual airbag is a person who does not respect the authority of God's word. Go back to verse six of chapter four. Now he says in verse six, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. You see, a person who is arrogant exceeds what is written. He says, in order that no one of you might become arrogant, there's your word, in behalf of one against the other. And so this exceeding what is written conveys an attitude. It has the idea God's word is not important anymore. They've gone beyond, they think beyond, actually beneath God's word. For that reason, they don't have any respect for the authority of God. And if you don't have any respect for the authority of God, then you don't have any respect for any authority. And therefore, sin is not an issue to them because sin is transgressing the authority of God and the will of God. But if you don't respect any authority, you're insensitive to that, not only your own sin, but the sin 
that is around you. Sin was just not an issue to them. And this is what happens when fleshly living, living is, is tolerated within the church. People become insensitive to sin. Matter of fact, they, they begin to give license to certain things that's going on. Well, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Verse one of chapter one says I'm, he was an apostle called by the will of God. And he was not going to allow this kind of conduct to continue. And verse three says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says, listen, since you won't discipline him, I will discipline him. I have authority over the churches given by Christ himself, and I have made a judgment concerning this man. He commands that this man be disciplined, and then he tells them when and how and where to do it. He says in verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. You see, Paul, as an apostle, pronounced the verdict. This man's guilty, but they are going to have to carry out the sentence. And this is why church discipline is such a painful thing, because it involves everybody. But I want to tell you something. What it does, it also is a purifying thing that God has ordered. It's a good thing. You never see church discipline in a bad light when you see it from God's Word. It's always a good thing. Because God is saying the standard of holiness needs to come back within the church. Therefore, Paul says, I have made the verdict. You won't do it. But I'm telling you, as if I were with you, when you're assembled together, you do this thing. You remove this man from your midst. In verse 4, he also shows how it's to be done. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus. And that means absolutely according to all that has been revealed of the character and the purpose of Christ. You see, nobody can maliciously use this to get rid of somebody in the church. That's not God's idea. That's not what he's saying. It has to be done according to the holiness and the character and the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, he says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. In that word is the authority, yes, but also the ability that only the Holy Spirit can give an individual when they carry out this kind of church discipline. You see, the love, the character, all that goes into it has got to come from God through a man. A man apart from God does not have the ability to discipline anybody, but God in a man doing accordance to the name of Jesus and doing it in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ can see this carried out the way God wants it to be carried out. It's not just excommunicating somebody. It's not just cutting them off. It's, it's a grieving heart. It's doing something that you realize is necessary for the sake of the body, but also for the sake of that individual. You must discipline when sin is not repented of. That's God's mandate. And we left off at verse five, and that's where we're gonna pick up today as we talk about the painful act of church Discipline, And there are three things that I want us to look at and certainly we'll leave other things out. My mind is only so big and what the Lord can reveal in my own heart. And as you study it with me, you help me. But here's the three things I want you to look at. First of all, is the authority, this decision involved. You see when Paul said, I, I, I've chosen to do this, now whose authority is he under? Well, back in verse three, we told you the decision. He says, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him. In other words, the decision is made. Now, how and why did Paul make that decision? Well, we know that Paul was a called apostle. We've said that. 
We know, we know that he also would have known the gospels and would have understood if not in his own personal walk with God, he would have understood from the gospels in Matthew that church discipline is not man's idea. Church discipline is God's idea. This didn't come up with a committee. This came from the Godhead himself. Look in, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. You must understand this. This is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Paul was an apostle, one who took the message of another and spread it. And he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the words of Christ himself. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. To me, it's very clear what Jesus has in mind. And I want you to notice there are four steps in it. And I also want you to notice in the situation in Corinth, you go immediately to step four without even the first three being mentioned, which shows you something of the sinfulness of the people of the church that they wouldn't have carried out the first three steps and also shows you the seriousness of what's going on in this man's life. But in Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, and if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. That's the first step. You know, when we first had elders at our church, many people came to us with everything you can think about of what they've heard, rumor, circumstance, everything else, thinking we were the spiritual Gestapo of the church. But I, we had to come back, if you remember, years ago and preach on the one another commands. It begins in the body. If we're living sensitive to sin and dealing with it in our own life, we're gonna become sensitive to it when we see it in our brother's life. And if you see your brother sin, you go to it. You go to it. Don't go to anybody else. You go to it. Well, he says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And that's happened so many times. Oh, we couldn't write it all down. How many times that's happened? You've never even known about it. Love covers. We don't air others' dirty laundry in the church. But then in verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Not necessarily of the sin itself, but of the attitude of this individual and whether or not it's being approached in the power of Christ, in the, in the name of Christ. There's a witness there to witness the both sides to how it's, how it's done, what's happening, etc. And then in verse 17 of chapter 18, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's step three. And of course, the church goes into immediate prayer as they become aware of a man's unwillingness to repent of sin. And then it says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, a lost man. And that's step four. You, you treat him the way he says he wants to be treated, basically. And that's what step four is all about. And it's God's plan. It's not man's plan. Sin is a reproach to God. And the church is to walk holy before him. It is not to tolerate sin in our individual lives. That's why, and we all deal with it individually. We deal with it as it comes up in our life. God's spirit brings it up. We deal with it under the grace and the blood of Christ. And then we go on repenting, depending upon Christ in us to, to enable us to overcome that sin. But when it becomes a pattern, when it becomes a lifestyle, we must deal with it within the body of Christ. When sin is allowed to remain within the church, two things happen. When I'm talking about sin, I'm talking about repeated sin, sin that becomes a pattern, sin that becomes the norm to somebody's life. Look out, two things. The testimony of the believers outside the church is damaged, but also the purity of the believers 
inside the church is affected. Young people, others look and see other older ones living in sin and they say, hey, it must, if it's okay for them, it must be okay for me. So when sin is allowed with to remain, it does a devastating work against what God's seeking to do within his church. Paul is an apostle commissioned by Christ with authority over the churches was not going to allow what flesh was doing to tear down what he had seen God raise up through him and then Apollos that followed him. Now the term I have decided in 1 Corinthians 5, 5 in the New American Standard is not in the Texas Receptus and I think it makes more sense if you leave it out. If you leave it out, look at verse 4 and 5, leaving that phrase out. Read it as one phrase. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Again, Paul is under the authority. That's where the authority comes from. This is a decision under the authority of Christ himself, made by his apostle who represented him. And you see, it's to set a standard for holy living within the body. The whole congregation must be involved. And I remember a situation that happened years ago that never got to step three. It got to step two. And I remember the night that a very dear, precious brother got right here at this pulpit, could hardly see over the top of the cross, may even be here this morning. And he began to share his heart and asking the church to forgive him for sin that was in his life. And I'll tell you what, of all the services I've been in in 16 years, starting my 17th year today at Woodland Park Baptist Church, that was the one that I remember the most. I remember while repentance was going on and encouragement was taking place, how we all begin to sing, oh, the blood of Jesus. You didn't have people standing condemning. You had people loving and praying and, and uniting together because a, a person who had been in habitual sin has come to repent and the people rejoice. And that's what it's all about, folks. But it's under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And a church that does not practice church discipline to me is a church like Corinth that has become insensitive to sin, not only their own sin, but others' sin. And they're not willing to project the holiness of God and the, the walk of the believer that that's to be in that light. Well, that's the authority that the decision involved. But the action that this decision invoked, in other words, the actions, where this is where the painful part comes. He says in verse five, to deliver such a one to Satan. To deliver such a one to Satan. Now the word Satan is an interesting name for the prince of devils. There are many names given him in scripture. He's called the devil. He's called Belial, which means worthless. It's a good name for him. The destroyer, the adversary, the prince of the power of the air. But with the word Satan is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, Satan, and it's a transliteration of that. It means adversary. It has to do with the one who opposes all that God stands for. He's the accuser of the brethren, an enemy to God, and all that are God's chosen. If a believer refuses to allow the Holy Spirit to dominate his life, and here's the whole situation here, and chooses rather to let his flesh dominate him, and this becomes repetitive in his life, and a habitual sin sets up, then he has sent a message, 
And that message is, I have effectually chosen to serve Satan rather than serve Christ. That's what he has already said by his actions. So the decision must be made. Remove the person from the body of believers and deliver him into the hands of the one he says he wants to serve. If he wants it, let him have it. That's the attitude of removing him into the hands of Satan. Church discipline is turning an unrepentant person over to what he says he wants. Now the word deliver there, parovitomy, is the word that means to deliver over or up to the power of someone. I suppose the expression could have come from the book of Job. If you look over in the book of Job, chapter 1 and verse 12. Job chapter 1 and verse 12. And this is interesting. It's a different situation altogether. We do not have a sinful man in Job. However, the expression is, all, is used with him. And we know that suffering was the means of purifying Job. Job chapter 1 verse 12 Job is delivered to Satan by God to be tried by suffering. Job chapter one, verse 12 says, then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And you don't have to turn over there, but in chapter two of Job in verse six, it says, so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. And so there is a such a thing of being turned over into the power of Satan and God himself originates that act. Now, as I said, there's a difference in Job and in this man in the church of Corinth. <laughs> this man in the church of Corinth is an unrepentant sinner. Job was not that at all. Job was a man seeking to live righteously before God and, and, and God wanted to prove him and that he would trust him even, even if, if nothing resulted. In other words, he'll serve God for nothing. That was the whole bottom line of the book of Job. But you see, with the man in Corinth, he's turned over into the hands of Satan and the suffering is also going to be involved, but to bring this man to repentance. Uh, sin has its own way of leading a person into destruction physically and emotionally and mentally. Now, if you don't understand that, then you don't realize what Jesus died on a cross to save us from. And when you go back to that kind of poison and you go back to that kind of lifestyle, it has its own way. And it'll drive some people mad because of sin in their life and the guilt that goes along with it. And so it's a dead end street. It's a dead end street. It robs the believer of all the joy, joy and, and the meaningfulness of life. Its consequences are grave. And so when you turn a person over to the one he's already serving, there's nothing ahead of him that he thinks that he wants. He may think, oh, fine with me, fine with me, turn me over. I enjoy what I'm doing. You hang on, friend, only for a season. There is a destructive end to sin. That's why we have been saved out from it by the Lord Jesus Christ, from its penalty and from its power. And when you turn a person over to Satan, he's going to immediately understand it's a fearful thing to be in the hands of a living God. We must remember that there is a point that sin has a deadly effect upon a believer's life. Look over in 1 John chapter 5. And I want you to notice the terminology very carefully that the Apostle John uses. Now, I don't understand these two verses. I wish I did. I understand some of it, but 
There's a lot of it I don't understand. I'll be honest with you. But let me just read them for you. And I'm sure many of you already have your decisions made as to what it means. I'm still suffering with it as far as discovering what it, the, the, the ins and outs of it are. 1 John 5, verse 16. He says, if anyone, and I notice this, sees his what? What's the next word? Brother. Oh, we're talking about a Christian brother here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. You remember, if you're lost, you cannot live lawlessly. But as a Christian, we can have a sin that can continually to haunt us. Hebrews said, lay aside the sin that does so easily beset you. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to what? Death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. And in verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. Now you say, well, Wayne, I've got that down. Piece of cake, go on. Well, I'm glad you do. Would you come up and help me with it after the service is over? I've studied 1 John twice now and I've gone through Brother Spiros' notes and the whole thing, but I still can't quite get my mind to tune in to exactly what he's talking about here. However, there is, a, there is a signal that goes up in my mind. Does it do this to you? There's a red flag that goes up and that red flag says, Wayne, son, don't mess with sin, period. And that comes across loud and clear. Even though I can't get all the A through Z meaning of it, I do know one thing, sin is serious, folks. And what happens is when you get this idea of grace that somehow it's licensed and you begin to tolerate certain sins in your life, that's the beginning. That's only the beginning. And it's a dead end street. You're going right back into the very lifestyle that Jesus has lifted you out of. And you don't understand it. The wages of sin is death. Maybe not, certainly not eternal death, but death. Death of relationship, death or fellowship, death of, of, of all the privileges. There is a death when you continue to walk in sin. And if you're here this morning and there's known sin in your life, you know it's there. Others are beginning to find out about it. You're unwilling to repent of it. Listen carefully to what we're saying. Listen, God's trying to get your attention. There's a dead end street to sin. Paul says that in an open assembly, this church is to remove this man from their fellowship and give him over to what he says he wants. You know what the tragic thing is? In America, which is a little different than back in that day, we've got so many churches that don't even deal with sin. All they have to do is say, uh-huh, see you later. And they'll go someplace else, camp out, and never have to deal with that sin. But friend, listen. It's painful, it's painful to go through the process of church discipline. We've had several people already turn us down as we've sought to get more elders in our church. You know why? Many of them have said to us, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to have to deal with that. And folks, any of our elders would tell you in a minute, it's the most distressing, most emotionally involved thing we go through. But it's one of the most necessary things that a church does is to deal with habitual sin. People that will not repent. All of us sin every day of our lives. And we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, sin cannot be swept under the rug. It has to be put under the blood. If a man wants disobedience, 
If a man wants sensual pleasure at the expense of his family, etc., if a man wants all that Satan offers, then the church says, if that's what you want, then we are removing you to the hands of the one you have chosen to serve. And that's what church discipline is. You want it, then you can have it. The action invoked by the decision is to deliver one over unto Satan. But I think the most encouraging part of the whole message, and I had to get through the first two to get to <laughs> is the invitation or the attitude, rather, that this decision invites. The attitude this decision invites. It, there's an invitation in this. When people can't see it, they're so blinded by their sin, they can't see that this is an act of love. They look at it as an act of rejection. They look at it as an act of hatefulness. But you see, if it's done in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the power of the Lord Jesus, it could never be translated that way except through a mind that has not been renewed by the Word of God. Only a person that doesn't understand God's Word would think of this as being a mean, cruel thing. Oh, no, no. There's an attitude that's the prayerful attitude that this is, becomes an invitation for. Disciplining an unrepentant person in the body of Christ is with a redemptive purpose. It's like sending them an invitation. And when that person's told, and it, in this church it's done by certified mail, and that's, if he wants to show up, show up. We'll deal with it right here. But it's done by certified mail to make sure he understands without any question what we're doing. It's written into our Constitution so we'll never be able to be sued for slander. And by the way, isn't that an interesting thing that has been brought about in the 20th century that you've got to cover those kind of bases? But you do. And we have. And we're ready. And what we send to him is, hey friend, if this is what you're going to do, we've already been to him. Several have been to him. We, matter of fact, if we err, we err on the side of waiting too long sometimes to go ahead and do it. But when it's done, it, it should be interpreted, if he understood God's word, it should be interpreted as a personal invitation from God himself to the people who represent him to repent of his sin. That's what it should be seen as. And there's an attitude of repentance that church discipline seeks to bring forth. It's to restore the man. That's what the whole thing's all about. But the pain has got to come first. The destruction of the flesh is an incredibly Interesting phrase. I've wrestled over it and wrestled over it. Started to bring it out last time. I wasn't ready. I'm not sure I am today. We'll see in just a moment. For the destruction of his flesh. To give him over, to, to, to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I interpret this to mean the infliction of physical pain. The end of which could be death if there is no repentance. Now you say, Wayne, what about the fleshly attitude? Hang on, I'll get to that in just a minute because it is also involved. But let's start first of all with the infliction of physical pain in that person's life. That doesn't mean some believer is going to take him out and beat him up. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the torment, the physical torment that sin brings upon an individual's life. And folks, if you don't believe that sin can cause that, then you just need to spend some time dealing with people that are called themselves believers that have gone into known sin and look at how sin has ravaged their physical body. The word destruction gives us a clue here. It doesn't mean to destroy completely. That's not the word. The word for destruction here is the word olethros, O-L-E-T-H-R-O-S, transliterated. It's not like Ananias and Sophia when they came before Peter and dropped dead. That's not, that's not the word here. It's the word that means progressive. It gets worse and worse torment. Physical pain. 
Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3 and you see how this word is used. It's so helpful to understand this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. It starts suddenly. You're not looking for it. The person living in sin who's chosen to dis dishonor God, dishonor his church, dishonor his testimony is a person who's blind as a bat. He doesn't even know what he's doing at this point. But suddenly, suddenly something comes upon him. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. Now I didn't use that for the context. I just used it for the verse itself. It says like a birth pang comes suddenly. I remember when, when little Stephanie was born and when Stephen was born and, and always waiting for those birth pains and how they don't come and they don't come, they don't come. You kind of forget about it. And then one day, boom, it's there. But one pain announces the coming of another. And it's interesting how those pains get worse as they come. And any, I don't really know that much about it because I hadn't been through that. But you ladies would understand very quickly. I mean, one comes and you think, oh, that's tough. And I've watched Diana. And the second one says, oh, that's worse. And it's like the progressiveness now has started. It came suddenly. It came when you might have been enjoying the best day that you've had in a long time. But suddenly the pain began. That's the word olethros. Look over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verse 9. And again, I'm not dealing with context, but how the word brings itself out in the verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, and these will pay the penalty of destruction. Is that what it says? No, it says what kind of destruction? Eternal destruction, that which goes on and on and on and on. I, I guarantee you, lost people will wish that that meant a one-time thing, but it doesn't. It means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever separated from God, enduring that destruction. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, if you want to look over there, in the same exact light, but just to read the verse. It is associated with ruin here. You ever watch something ruin? Something doesn't ruin like that. Something begins to ruin and it begins to rust and ruin. And after a while, it's progressive. It doesn't start off that way. It just slowly begins to start and then it gets worse and worse. First Timothy chapter six and verse nine, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into what? Into ruin and destruction. And to me, just the word ruin gives you the idea. Ruin, I mean literally ruin to completely make somebody unusable. And when a person lets sin get into their life, will not repent of it, will not acknowledge it, will not seek forgiveness, will not turn to God for his help, that does not mean he'll become perfect in that area. It doesn't mean he'll never be tempted again in that area. But if he's not willing to deal with it and he continues on with it and it becomes a pattern to where people know about it and realize he's not repentant of it, then not only has he killed his testimony with others, but he's leading his life into ruin. You know, if we've forgotten what we were saved from, then no wonder this is a difficult passage. But if you can go back and remember what it was like to be lost, you understand exactly now what sin can do to a person's life. Well, as you can see, 
It's associated, the word is, every time it's used, with divine judgment, but particularly in a progressive type of judgment. Something that doesn't happen instantly, but something that happens progressively. We must remember that Satan has no power over the spirits of believers. This is the one thing that we can count on. You don't lose your salvation because it says in chapter 1 that we are being kept, kept, held on to, guarded until that day we're being kept blameless. Never says we're kept sinless, we're kept blameless. That as far as we may plunge ourselves and if death itself has to take us out of here to salvage anything that God's doing on this earth, still we'll be saved so as by fire because the fire cannot destroy the foundation which is Christ. And we must remember that. Satan does not have any power over that. We saw this with Job. He could inflict physical things upon him, but he could not bring him to the point of death and he could not bring him. This is God's prerogative. He had no charge over the soul of Job. Even in the verse that we're looking at, he says that he will be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. So we know his spirit's going to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But the key here is to understand in the meantime, the unrepentant believer may be turned over to suffer greatly at the hands of Satan. And this is a physical thing as well as something else I'll bring out in a moment. Now, before we get too far, be real careful because Jesus spent a lot of time trying to show us that because we're suffering does not mean necessarily that we have committed sin in our life. Some people interpret suffering and they automatically link it to personal sin. All of suffering can be linked to original sin, period. That's when the world was cursed and we live in that kind of world. But just because you're suffering does not mean God is, is telling you that you've sinned and this is a result of it. That's not at all what Jesus says. Matter of fact, we saw that with Job. Job hadn't done that. And then also in John chapter nine and verse two, and his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he should be born blind? They thought that since a man was blind, his parents must have done something terrible and God was trying to send a signal or a message to them. And Jesus answered them very clearly. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. You can never say that because a person is going through difficulty and suffering and, 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 all, and pain, that that is because of his own personal sin. No, not necessarily. However, that should be the first question if you're in that situation that you must ask. God is this because of that and the Holy Spirit will be very clear and bring you to the place that you need to be. That ought to be the first consideration. But it's not always the situation. Many people suffer, righteous people like Job and others. Matter of fact, I read a statement by Tozier and I hate to lift something not in the word, but I read it by him and it really clicked in my heart. He says, only those, and when he talks about righteous suffering, only those whom God can trust will he allow to suffer. I've chewed on that thought for many years. It could be that's a great blessing in your life that you're suffering. And God is using that to keep you daily at the cross and depending upon him. So don't ever interpret suffering necessarily to be the consequence of personal sin. However, the Bible is also clear that in certain situations, suffering and even physical death are the direct result of sin. You say, Wayne, where is that? Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30. We hadn't gotten there yet. We're going to get there. Here's this fleshly minded church. And what are they doing? They're taking the Lord's Supper, a very sacred time, a time of remembrance of the cross and all that he did for us on the cross. And they're making a meal out of it. and They're getting drunk off the wine. 
And the Apostle Paul has to deal with them about their attitude and the sinfulness that's there. And so let a man examine himself. It's funny how we always use that passage at Lord's Supper, <laughs> but that was used specifically at the Corinthian church that was living in awful sin. I have to make sure I remember that the next time we do it, remember the context of it. But in chapter 11 and verse 30, he says this, for this reason, many among you are weak. Now watch the terminology here. And sick and a number, what? Sleep. Oh, Brother Wayne, that just means they're home, skip the meeting and they're sleeping. No, no, no. Dead. D-E-A-D. It's kind of like when Jesus was talking about Lazarus. And the, and the disciples didn't know what he's talking about. In John chapter 11, he said, Lazarus is asleep. And they said, oh, good, we don't have to go. He, he recovered. And Jesus turned around. And I was preaching this one time, and I was trying to sound very knowledgeable. And I said, and Jesus turned around and said in plain English. <laughs> uh, but he did. He turned around. And he says, dead. <laughs> Not asleep. Dead. Don't you understand? And that's the word used here. Some are weak. Some are sick. And some of you are dead because you're desecrating the very testimony that God has placed within you. You see, he told them in chapter one, he says the testimony of God has been confirmed in you. But the problem is it's never been confirmed outside of them, you see. And they've chosen to live fleshly lives. A terrible church in the New Testament. Woe that we'd ever get to that place. You see, if sin is not dealt with, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of church it comes from. Well, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church about the proceeds from the sale of their property in the book of Acts, they dropped dead. Can you imagine the visitation program the following week? Oh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're down the church down the corner here. Uh, let me ask you a question. Was Ananias and Sapphira ever a member of your church? Well, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they sort of dropped their membership a few days ago. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I think I'm gonna visit the one down here. I don't wanna go to that church. You know what, if you'll think about it, that was at the very beginning of the church. When you see these, these situations like this take place when somebody dies, that's not a norm, that's not a pattern. However, it's an example, and, and, and I think God allows it to happen to send a signal to the church that sin is serious. Sin is serious. You don't mess with sin. Happened the same way in the Old Testament. Look at, look at that passage. I want you to read this passage. with Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you'll turn over there just for a second. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And it won't take but a minute to read it, and we'll just read it together. It says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, they, this was in a time when they were selling and giving it all to the church and to those who need it. And they decided, woo, we got a better price and we thought we'd get off that thing and let's just keep some of it back. <laughs> oh, Brother Wayne, that's not bad. I do it all the time, you say. Well, let's just keep reading. Verse three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back some of the price of the land. Now, how did he know that? Boy, God must have told him. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, to give it. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. 
And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard it. And that's exactly what all this is about. A fear of God, a reverential fear of him to understand that sin is, sin, is serious. Verse six, and the young men arose and covered him up and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. You know what's happened in the, in the 20th century? We've lost that fear. We don't have any fear of God anymore. Why, we're under grace. And we don't understand that to pursue sin is going to invoke a consequence, a consequence which is physically tormenting and may even take us home to be with the Lord Jesus Christ if we continue with it and fail to repent. Well, church discipline is for the express purpose of repentance of the one removed. Now, I told you I was going to bring back an idea. You said, what about, could it really mean not the body of flesh, since the word sarx is used, could it mean the mindset of the flesh that has controlled this man all the time? It means both. By the infliction of the body of the flesh, it causes the mindset of the flesh to be exposed and the prayer and the hope of this whole thing is that this person would come to repent. The prodigal son had to be in the, 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 the mire of the swine before he finally came to his senses and returned to his father. And we don't know what the end of this thing shall be. That's why there should be a holy, righteous fear of continuing in sin in any of our lives. Repentance is to bring a person to a total change of attitude towards sin and towards God. Now, I want to close with this. In, in the case of this man, <clears throat> we believe, I do, I'm one of them that believes that he did repent. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'll read this and we're, over, we're out of here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> which is exactly what it's supposed to be for. It was an invitation for this man to get his life right. He couldn't see it at first, but after some suffering came into his life, sorrow, then finally he came to his senses and saw it and repented. In 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 5, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. In other words, when one sins, we're all affected. Verse six, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was passed, inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. For we're not ignorant of his schemes. And it appears that in 2 Corinthians, they didn't want to take him back. In 1 Corinthians, they didn't want to get rid of him. <laughs> and Paul said, will you guys ever learn? 
And he says, when you take him back, you love him and you comfort him and you bring him back as a brother who's repented and you don't hold it against him. God's already dealt with him enough so that he would not have too much sorrow in his life and be overwhelmed. Well, the bottom line is, and I got to quit. Bottom line is that church discipline is not a joyous thing, but it can lead to a joyous result. I have a dear friend who's in the ministry I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to leave that alone. Forget I said that. He serves a church, but I'm not sure, sure that means he's in the ministry. Ministry to me has a much deeper significance than just being on a church staff. For years and years, he developed the pattern in his life of adultery. Nobody knew about it. I honestly believe that when it finally began to come out, if some church somewhere that he was serving would have dealt with this and dealt with it in the name of the Lord Jesus and with the power of the Lord Jesus, they may could have reconciled this man to where he would not have lost everything in his life. And I wished I could give him a phone call and have him come here and stand on this platform and say to you, what he has just told you is exactly right. I was saved from this lifestyle, but I chose to go back to it. And the destruction in his life, folks, would take volumes to tell you about this morning. The pain of church discipline. But next time we come together, we're going to talk about the purifying of church discipline. There's a purifying aspect like taking leaven out of a lump of dough so that the whole dough could remain pure. That's what it's all about. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 